The following podcast is brought to you by Rare Book School at the University of Virginia and sponsored by the Pine Tree Foundation of New York. To learn more about our programs and how you can support our school, please visit our website at www.rarebookschool.org. Thank you and enjoy. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the fifth Rare Book School lecture of the 2012 summer season. I'm very pleased to thank uh, Harrison Small uh, Auditorium and um, the Albert and Shirley Small Special Collections uh, team for our use of the auditorium. I'm also very grateful to the Pine Tree Foundation of New York who is the sponsor of these lectures. Uh, Johan and I were just talking about um, doing research on the internet and how lazy people can be. The internet has made few people smarter, but sometimes it makes you meaner. I would like to read to you a translation from Johan Kugelberg's Wikipedia entry in Swedish <laughs> using Google Translate and editing somewhat. <laughs> Johan Kugelberg, born in May 1965, is a Swedish music producer, record label owner, music writer, mat connoisseur, which I don't know what that means and I couldn't find out, and collector of... I'm sorry? Oh, food connoisseur, I didn't get that. And, 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 and collector of popular cultural artifacts. Kugelberg is perhaps best known, when this was written, not the case anymore, for having produced two music albums with Freddie Wadling and Spain, and to have played on Union Carbide Productions' first album. He has previously worked in the record business, including American Recordings and Matador Records. He has lived since the 1980s in New York. He also played in the band Captain Future and the Zap Guns, <laughs> who released two singles in 1985 and 1986. Um, many of you will know that, that Johan... Uh, wrote his first book on the Velvet Underground, New York Art, and um, um, uh, Born in the Bronx, A Visual History of Hip-Hop, Beauty is in the Street, A Visual Record of the May 68 Paris Uprising, and um, Punk and Aesthetic, which came out just this year. Those books are in the back for your delectation. Uh, among Johan's many projects is the Boo Hooray Gallery in New York City, which is at the cutting edge of popular culture and very important. For all his many interests, Johan is a member of the Grolier Club and has uh, done much to, to help uh, revitalize the membership there, I think. And um, I think that Johan is a breath of fresh air. I think he is one of the most interesting and exciting minds in the world of books and ephemera today. Please join me in welcoming my friend Johann Kugelberg.
Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming out. So, why do I not care about what my Wikipedia entry says? And why am I indifferent to if it even exists in English or not? And that's sort of, they, they mentioned that I was, that I have an interest in cooking and fine foods and such. And, uh, you know, it's, it's the kind of too many chefs, too many chef editors. It's, I, when that Wikipedia entry showed up for the first time, I was thinking, oh, I should really correct it. I should get somebody who's like a, you know, Wikipedia editor to set it straight and to, you know, put down the titles of my books at least and, you know, the homepage for the gallery. And then I realized that I would rather not play that game and keep that sort of half-assed Wikipedia entry <laughs> as, you know, a filter, if you wish. Um, I have a past as a record executive, that's true. I was the general manager of an Atlantic Records-owned label called Madigal Records, and I was the vice president of a Warner Brothers-owned label called Deaf American. I was a rec record producer for, as my profession for a number of years, and uh, I actually won a jazz vocal producer Grammy in uh, 1999, which I'm very, very proud of. In 2000, my second child was born, uh, my daughter Sophia, and uh, I ended up being Mr. Mom for almost two years. When my son Sam was born in 1992, I was averaging 90, 95, 100 hour weeks. I'm not kidding. It's, it was brutal back then. Um, so when Sophia was born, we had, myself and my wife, we'd made some money and I could afford to stay home for two years. Um, because, you know, with Sam, I'd missed out on play dates, I'd missed, I'd missed out on the first steps, on, you know, all kinds of really, really important stuff. So, cut to the chase. When I wanted to re-enter the professional world after having been home for a couple of years, in that wake of two or three years, there was no record business left. Uh, the difference between 1999 record business and 2003 record business is almost absurd. It's, it's almost unbelievable. So, I was trying to figure out at the tender age of 37 what my second career was going to be. And in an odd way, that second career had already commenced because ever since I was four or, f four or five years old, I have memories of the library at the country estate of my family in Sweden. And that country estate, which had been run by the family non-profit for probably like 50 or 60 years at that point, because nobody can afford the upkeep of a house like that. It was just completely insane. And my parents, uh, both academics, both broke. The, the gag I always tell is that we would drive in a rusty French car to this 120-room mansion to play croquet on the Grand Lawn for the weekend. But sometimes my grandmother would let me go up to the library 
And the library wasn't a crumbling library, like those sort of picturesque libraries you imagine in, you know, English country piles where there's like a Shakespeare first folio or, you know, a copy of Urquhart's The Jewel under a pile of rubble. This library was sealed off and it was organized and it was cleaned regularly. And uh, getting to go in there was almost insanely elevating and set me on the course of a lifelong public library junkie who would also slowly but steadily descend into private library junkie. I, I started collecting books in my mid-late teens. The first author I ever collected was Flann O'Brien. Uh, and uh, over the years, I would build collections. I uh, was very interested in Maurice Gerodius' uh, Paris Olympia Press and built up a collection of that. And I'm, very, I'm also really interested in early satire, and Rabelais and Devil on Two Sticks, uh, Roger the Fox, that sort of thing. So the first time I ever sold a collection was in the late 1990s where my good friends Peter and Bill at Ursus Books in New York City had acquired a Rabelais that just completely knocked me out when I saw it. And it was so far out of my price range that there was no way I was going to be able to acquire this book without thoroughly pissing off my wife. <laughs> so uh, I sold two collections to finance this Rabelais purchase. And uh, in selling those collections through Ursus, together with these giants of rare books, Peter and Bill, and uh, their uh, colleague Michael Laird, who did the cataloging with me, I had some sort of resonating idea that this is part of how cultural narratives are preserved and how they don't get lost. And I certainly had an extensive familiarity with this through the music business at Warner Brothers because I was one of the guys who would put together a retrospective over, help put it together a retrospective over the Kinks or Alice Cooper or Devo or, you know, Coleman Hawkins or Charlie Patton or, or whoever. So in 2003, I was sort of going, all right, I think this is what I'm going to do. And the first archive that I started, started working on, with permission from the missus, I literally asked her one day if she was okay with me spending five years, ten years, attempting to piece together the narrative of the early history of hip-hop. And what made me want to do that was a um, young man who was troubled with substance abuse and so forth that we had taken into our house and were taking care of and trying to help straighten out, had one passion and one passion alone, and those hip-hop records. So, of course, you know, I, I wanted to share some of the passion that he had for that. He brought over some of his favorite records to play for me one day. He was maybe 16, 15, 16 at the time. He played me a copy of Standing on the Top by Super 3. And my jaw absolutely dropped. And it was like hearing 
Coltrane or hearing Wilson Pickett or hearing, yeah, even Charlie Patton, just absolutely super powerful, sublime African-American creative musical expression. So I was like, all right, now I'm going to go on a few websites, see which reissues I'm going to buy, and then I'm going to go buy a few books on the subject and then figure out like where there's like a great museum or public collection that has really documented early hip-hop, because this stuff is obviously so important that tons of people must have done it already. And then when I came up with absolute bupkis, I was baffled. I was absolutely baffled. You know, I'm, I'm Swedish. I moved to New York in 1987. So I certainly wasn't there in New York City for the Golden Age. And I had to start from scratch, which is asking the permission of the spouse. I was like, all right. I literally was all right there. Can I do this for 10 years? And she was like, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Get out of my way. And then I started traveling sort of concentric circles in the Bronx. Like, you know, like Gene Kelly and like singing in the rain. Knocking on the door going, gotta buy your records in February. Um, and... It's, there, were, there were many bands, and there were many amazing experiences where you would uncover these extraordinarily potent narratives. And I have old buddies who are scholars of early jazz and early blues, and they quite often talk as much about the stuff that was lost as the stuff that was found. They will talk about the point when all of the plates for all of Paramount's country blues masterpieces and where the press materials and the original photographs were dumped in the river in my co-worker Michael's hometown of Chicago. And there are stories about people actually diving for those metal masters for years afterwards. So you sense how much it's lost. And the way to deal with that, for me, has always been the extraordinary gratitude I feel for what is found, and for what is preserved. And, of course, we all know how messy history is, and how there are numerous dead ends, there are things that, there are, there are events that will start contradicting themselves as you draw more and more strands of information of a moment that you pinpoint it. But I'm in Co-op City. I'm in Mount Vernon. I am putting flyers on the telephone poles. I'm leaving my card in Delhi's, and I'm trying to sort of reel in this narrative to, you know, fishing metaphors. Of course, they're going to show up sooner or later. Um, and once in, I think it was 2003, when the collection had grown to a point where I actually thought that I needed to start you know, seriously communicating with academic institutions to find a home for this. Because the purpose of the hip-hop collection 
was always to create an archive devoted to the study of the early history of hip-hop. Um, I had a couple of legendary fellows over at our apartment, and they and my son Sam walks out of this room and goes, Dad, those guys, do they think you're down? And I'm like, no, of course not. By the time they reach the elevator, they are laughing at the way I walk, the way I talk, the way I dress. But I really hope that they think that I'm honest and that my passion for their culture is real. And that was one part of the hip-hop documentation narrative that was so critical was to get the sort of peer-to-peer-to-peer -to -peer -to -peer recommendations. Some of them nicknamed me the ATM. Um, <laughs> oh, I found a stack of old flyers in a shoebox. I'm going to go downtown to the ATM because I'm a little bit low for the weekend. Um, oh, I was just down at my cousin's in Trenton, New Jersey. He has a garage full of records. I wonder if the ATM would be interested. And the reason that I'm stressing this anecdote is when it comes to things that are so ephemeral and so rare as something like this, which is the original paste up of a performance flyer for the nice and nasty Three, circa 1981, if I remember correctly. Um, and such a masterpiece of simple, immediately communicative artwork by the, in my opinion, master of the form, by Esquire, who were designing these based on the facades of the Deco theaters of the Bronx that still existed at that point, and filtering this through certainly Marvel comics, you know, you can sort of sense a bit of Marvel comics in there. You can sense a little bit of Star Wars, you can sense, you know, disco razzle-dazzle, but I wanted to be the person they went to first. So, of course, these kind of things are. Please pass along. Uh, of course, these kind of things are collected by record collectors, by you know, homeboys, by hip hop aficionados, and sometimes you know, once in a while, be like, oh yeah, that, uh, I just sold all my stuff to Koji in Japan <laughs> last year. And then, of course, I email Koji in Japan, and he provides stamps of everything and includes some of the central pieces. He, in turn, donates to the because he respects it as an item. In 2004, uh, the next real milestone happened with this archive, which was when I was introduced to the brilliant and profoundly intelligent Catherine Reagan of Cornell University, who uh, in the first meeting we had at my apartment, uh, in our conversation there, she 
made some promises of what we were going to do together and kept each and every one of them just like this, like that, like that. We are going to stage a symposium. We are going to ensure that the actual pioneers of hip hop culture are going to do workshops and lectures and are going to travel to the campus. We are going to ensure that the materials are digitized and that people who are not Cornell students can access them. You know, whether it's a 14 year old kid or an 8 year old retired engine driver, doesn't matter. So that became my end game for the hip hop archive. Uh, it was placed with Cornell University in 2008, and we staged a symposium that year, which was attended by almost a thousand people from around the world. Uh, Catherine <laughs> made it all happen, and uh, swore up and down, never again, never again, never again. <laughs> and uh, I'm trying to convince her to do a follow-up in <laughs> 2014. So, the hip-hop archive became a perfect storm for me. And um, I'd, also, I'd also done the Gene Kelly got a dance knocking on the door for a variety of universities. And I'm not going to mention any names whatsoever. Sometimes I couldn't even get my toe in the door. Sometimes I got my foot in the door. I think like once or twice I had my knee in the door. But the first person that I think realized where this narrative lies within other narratives of the 20th century was Catherine Reagan and her amazing boss, Anne Um As 2004 became 2005, my next curiosity kicked into gear almost in exactly the same way. Um, I became fascinated by the events around uh, the student uprising in Paris in May of 1968. And uh, there wasn't, there were some books on it, there were some good history books, um, but what truly fascinated me was how, since the students had such limited access to the media during these heavy events, to say the least, they communicated via silkscreen posters. Um, and these posters, there's a couple of original ones, past more. These posters, where the editorial process started in the morning. And uh, the first thing that happened would be the image would be chosen and the slogan or the statement would be chosen. Then during mid-morning to lunchtime, they would be painted. Then they would be transferred into silk screens. For the remainder of the day, they would be printed. They were, the edition size varied from hundreds to tens of thousands. And then each evening, they would be distributed and, I have to say it, plastered all over Paris. 
And then the next morning, the same process starts over and over again. And this is not the only thing that is absolutely unbelievable as far as grassroots activism implementing change goes. You know, by the first week, they are publishing their own newspaper, Action, which is done without a central editorial committee. That's nuts. And the day before Twitter, email, websites, what have you. So this was just absolutely utterly fascinating to me. And there is a couple of substantial archival holdings of these kind of materials. There's a great archive in Amsterdam, uh, but which has such a radical political slant that you can't kind of go in there as like a hi, how you doing scholar. And there's also, of course, a great collection at the French National Library, but you can't really handle this stuff because it's so hopelessly ephemeral. You know, they have, they, uh, Philippe Vermeil, my co-author of this book, who uh, uh, founded the Atelier Populaire together with two other people in May 3rd of 1968, told me endless stories about how they would literally like, go on like begging tours to get paper and ink every evening, every night, and how people who were printing newspapers or who worked in print shops or paint stores out of solidarity would donate these rolls of paper or buckets of ink or what have you, and that this just kept going and going and going. And um, so, in so many words, I decided, all right, exhibit book. Let's, I gotta do that. So, through my good friend Ralph Rugoff, who is the director of the South Bank Center in London, we decided to stage an exhibition at the Hayward to commemorate the 40th anniversary in 2008. And it was written to, we had 11,000 exclusive visitors in 21 days. And we did talks and symposiums. Um, I got attacked by pissed off Trotskyites a couple of times, which was very, very entertaining. Um, but that, ex that exhibition, was, which was the posters, these beautiful, strange ephemeral 68 posters, that was all I had access to at that point. And we've done like informative texts and timelines and all that kind of stuff on, on the walls. You know, like proper museum style, but slightly less appalling possibly. Um, but then the people started coming out of the woodworks. And I started traveling to Marseille and to Lyon and to Paris and coming across these just unbelievable shoeboxes in the attics, in the basements, and passing these around because what I didn't know what to do as far as the narrative of the book goes was that I didn't want to be like one of these dudes who attempted with like some sort of 
horrific notion of the picturesque to explain this these very heady, romantic, dynamic, exciting times. I didn't want to do anything because I'm enough of that clown already. So these documents, I also don't speak French, which is an absolute nightmare, but uh, luckily several members of my staff do. So suddenly we had first person eyewitnesses on mimeographed old crumbling sheets of paper. Because this, we probably had access to, let's say, 1,000, 1,200 different handouts and leaflets and internal documents and meeting notes and so forth. So for the book, we decided to translate either excerpts or the whole thing of, I think, roughly 30 documents that we felt told the story. So that supplemented the imagery in the book. And then we also spent months putting together a timeline, attempting to really distill the events to anything that wasn't tainted by opinion. There's one, I didn't bring a copy of the hip hop book, which I should have done, I forgot it. But with the hip hop book, and what was really tricky was that when I was in the starting blocks for the hip, for the hip hop book, I started taking oral histories, as many oral histories as I could. And I also have had have some buddies at uh, the Experience Music Project in Seattle, which is the great uh, music museum founded by uh, Microsoft men. And they had taken over 120 hours of uh, oral histories that they provided me with uh, audio and transcripts of. So I started reading all these things, right? And then I'm noticing that not only three fellas are remembering the same event in different ways, but also that the same legendary MC remembers the same event in a different way depending on his mood that given day. <laughs> so, oral histories are not always great until, unless there is something that you know, corroborates what they're actually saying in the oral history. Problems with that, too. <coughs> um, quantum leap from hip-hop to punk, certainly. But here is a important June 1977 Punk Flyer for a performance by Susan Banshees, Adam and the Ants, and Snatch. All playing at the Void Club in London. This flyer is reproduced in a couple of punk books. And it is listed on a few punk websites. This event, it never took place and the Void Club never opened. <laughs> so, the document sometimes lies. Here is uh, a 1967 flyer for the magical exorcism of the Pentagon <coughs> taking place at uh, the Village Theater in New York City to coincide with the Levitate the Pentagon event in Washington, D.C. And this, on occasion, I'll also see mentioned after you know, some hardcore Googling. It never happened. <laughs> 
So, you know, the, the, the 20th century is a mess. The second half of the 20th century is such a mess. And it's wonderful. And it's really challenging. And as we are slipping and sliding into this digital age, and we're not going to crack open that can of worms today. It's another, well, that can of worms will be next summer, right? <laughs> it'll, it'll be one of the can of worms that we put aside in the next summer. But um, in a digital age, it sort of goes back to the Wikipedia entry that I mentioned in the beginning, and it, it is that who watches the watchman kind of thing, is what materials get digitized, what materials get are made available online, who are the people who do it, what do they, you know, when you gave your talk and you in New York, and you made one example that lingered with me for a long time, Michael, when you were talking about how certain things don't translate into scams. You know, there, it's if you look at uh, 15th and 16th century books, sometimes portions of the tie have different colors, and that actually signifies a change in narrative. And uh, if you scan these in black and white, none of us will ever know that, ever. And as I'm saying that, I'm going to put my foot in my mouth and also say that this poster, um, which was found, it was like three weeks after I turned down, turned in the final pass of my Melvin Underground book to my editor <laughs> that had sent the printer and I couldn't make any changes anymore. <laughs> All right, so um, this is a major counterculture event, August 11th, 1965. Uh, they are showing underground films by Jack Smith, by Andy Warhol, by Barbara Rubin, by Piero Hellingsek. <coughs> William Burroughs is reading. So is Allen Ginsberg. So is Gregory Corso. So is Sperling Daddy. Pretty written tootin' lineup. Uh, all kinds of people are reading poetry. And there's also rock groups performing. The Fucks are playing. And a band called The Falling Spikes. Um, Falling Spikes are also known as the Bell of uh, in every public history on the Velvet Underground, and this is painful, including mine, <laughs> I state, well, we, we all state with a calm and clear and steady voice that Andy Warhol met the Velvet Underground December 16, 1965, at the Cafe Bazaar on 106 West 3rd Street, the night after Barbara Rubin had brought, you know, blah, 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 blah. This is four months earlier, and Warhol is on the bill with the Velvets. This isn't a big venue. Later on, this venue was known as the Mercer Arts Center until it actually collapsed in, I think, 1974. 
So then I'm thinking, all right, this obviously never happened. They can't lie. You know, the illustrious Mr. Lou Reed wouldn't fit me. You know, he's a great admirer. So I go to the internet. I Google and I Google and I Google, and I come across a mention on the NYPD website <laughs> of how Jack Smith and Piero Helixer, the two MCs, were arrested for outstanding drug warrants that night at this address. <laughs> so, I guess what that means is that uh, the internet can be pretty good sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so, the other thing that happens when you finish a book is people show up with materials that you've been dreaming about seeing for years and years, and they always show up after you've already turned it into your editor. So, after the Velvet's played August 11th, 1965, as The Falling Spikes, The Velvet's also played in May of 1965 as The Velvet Underground. So, first they were called The Velvet Underground, and they were called The Falling Spikes, and then they were called The Velvet And the reason that I'm illustrating this is that, of course, as book people, and we're all book people, and the 20th century, the second half of the 20th century is so messy that this stuff is arguably rare books at this point. Fanzines, underground, self-published, sometimes borderline, samizdat, first-person stories that illuminate change, that illuminate grassroots activism, that illuminate international communication, that illuminates this maze that is the Moors and the times that we're traveling through this lifetime. Um, this table right here is a table and a half, and I'm going to show you why. As I have spent the last five or six years uh, researching a exhibit and publication devoted to the aesthetic history of the punk movement. Um, I brought the, the first copy of the book. I just got my first author's copy last week, so it's here. I co-authored this book with my buddy John Savage, who wrote a wonderful book in the early 90s called England's Dreaming on the British punk movement. Uh, this is coming out in September, and uh, for the first three years working on this book, I didn't really, I wasn't completely sure whether there was a punk aesthetic or not. That it became what uh, Stuart Holm describes as one of those things that sort of start disappearing the closer, the, the closer you get to it. Um, 
this book was also the kind of book where you have to try to figure out what a starting point is, which you guys all know as historians and scholars and librarians and all around clever people, that that also becomes one of those things that gets sketchier and sketchier the closer you get to something. So how does one solve that one? Arbitrarily. <laughs> um, questions. Are you talking about British punk or US punk? I'm talking about the whole schmear. The whole thing? Yeah, it's uh, what I often... Sorry? Don't they have different roots? Oh, you're cutting into the chase, which I'm delighted to. Sorry, I'm no, sorry. The, 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 the chase that we're cutting to is spending all this time putting this book together. I am John. We started sensing more and more that when these paradigm shifts occur, None of us can identify the paradigm shift while we are within it. We can only identify the old paradigm once we're in the new paradigm. And that means that punk never happened. <laughs> it was just one gigantic state of flux. And that state of flux expressed itself in the manner that there were ideas and aesthetic choices and roots they were almost like in there and the people grabbed from out of the air simultaneously in Japan and Australia and England and France and West Coast and East Coast and Ireland and that things happened more or less simultaneously by people who had no idea what the other people were doing and that is something that I come across over and over again in the history of these subcultures and counterculture strands of thought that I study. Um, ever since I was a kid, I've been well, kid, 15, 16, 17, part of the punk rock rite of passage in the late 70s, early 80s was reading or pretending to have read The Situationists. Uh, the Board Society of the Spectacle, Ralph Williams' Revolution of Everyday Life, uh, Constant Neumann-Hoyce's texts on the New Babylon and so forth. Um, now, at the tender age of 47, I read these texts as, part, as a part of the research in punk. I started collecting these publications and these materials. So, and that, is, and what it exemplifies perfectly is this is one dozen uh, copies of the 1966 Strasbourg Situations text on the poverty of student life. Uh, three situationists infiltrated the students' club at the University of Strasbourg and uh, took a bunch of money and printed up 10,000 of these babies that they distributed all over campus. Huge scandal. This is basically a manual of how to drop out of college and create a problem. <laughs> and it was widely distributed 
and the late 60s, early 70s. And none of these, including ones with almost no identical covers, are the same translations. And um, the translations are drastically different. And the publication records are blatantly unreliable. So, how do we deal with that one? What do we do? Some sort of critical mass thing that, all right, now we have 12 different translations of the text. Um, and by the way, we actually don't know who the person who wrote the original text is either. It's like the Bible. Better, huh? It's like the Bible. Oh, <laughs> we're, we're Bible. sorry. <laughs> Um, so, what can I do as a historian? I can attempt to gather as many examples of this as I possibly can. And to ensure that all of those examples are in the same place. Because this is exactly the kind of problems of bibliography that attracted us to this profession in the first time. You know, it points. And it is contamination of texts. And it is how trustworthy worthy in additions. It's like all of this stuff that we do all the time. And a couple of further illuminations on that theme is uh, when Michael was up here, this is what I chose to show you. And now I'm back at Russian Internet again. This is a very rare uh, publication which crosses over absolutely blue chip fine artists of 2012. Like the bluest blue chip you can get of contemporary New York painters with the punk scene. The bands and the painters and the writers and the poets and the photographers, they're all in this magazine together. It's unbelievable. It's crazy. You can't even understand how this happened when you crack these open. And hardly anybody has ever seen these ever, ever, ever. The reason? It's called X Magazine. It's impossible to Google. You cannot Google a publication called X Magazine. If you can't Google a publication like X Magazine, you can't figure out who was the editorial staff for X Magazine. So you can't contact the editorial staff of X Magazine to figure out anything about X Magazine because you can't Google X Magazine. So a couple of buddies of mine who are very booksellers and who are into you know, we're, we're into the punk movement in the late 70s, early 80s, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we have been collectively like losing our plot over this magazine ever since the first few copies showed up about you know, a year and a half. None of us knew it. I found them because I was looking for copies of 
no matters. <laughs> and no magazine is also computed on Google, naturally, and has that additional layer of amusement that there was a punk magazine out of Los Angeles called No Magazine. I'm not looking for that. I'm looking for New York's No Magazine that published four issues between August 77 and March 1979, of which I found one. And I've been in touch with all members of the editorial staff, staff who in total kept one copy <laughs> of issue four. So the point about this is that obviously it is a labyrinth, and it is a maze, and you have to use like some sort of intuition, common sense, librarian instincts, historian instincts. But then I want to go back to this crazy uh, misery of student life publication and talk about like critical mass of knowledge. If enough clever pants folks like you guys are studying a topic, document, documenting a topic, identifying materials, gathering materials, then we will reach this wonderful critical mass of knowledge that will explain more than the sum of its parts. Some of this stuff looks like crap. Some of it looks like things that are of zero academic merit, scholarly merit, that shouldn't be in institutes and libraries of higher learning, and fooey to that. Because I am not... If I ever try to editorialize the historical narrative of a subculture, may a very large hornet sting me where the sun doesn't shine. And that is how our profession works for the benefit of all of us inside this room as a culture, as a nation, as human beings, is that we are preserving narratives, whether they're popular narratives or unpopular narratives, because obviously knowledge is power, and libraries are these bastions of the accumulated knowledge of mankind that all of us are the protectors of. Notwithstanding whether we agree with Monte Casasa and what he wrote in Nitrous Oxide Number 1, <laughs> but a la Voltaire, we got to make sure that Monte Casasa's Nitrous Oxide Number 1 is properly identified and cataloged and preserved and digitized and all that. Um, 
to round off this day here, um, I am... We're a little bit tight for time. Oh, then I'm just going to say thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>